Robert Atkinson is here. He is the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. He's the author of several books, including Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Mythology of Small Business, which I recommend. Rob is here today because he wrote a provocative paper that caught my eye. It's called Anti-Corporate Broadband Populists' Real Agenda, Destroy the Current Private Sector System. I will be talking to him about the paper and about what's going on in the world of broadband more generally. This is, of course, the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. We're fortunate to be joined also once again by Tech Freedom's own Jim Dunstan, our general counsel, a broadband expert in his own right. Rob, it is great to have you on, and Jim, you as well. Thank you, Corbin. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Rob, basics to begin with. What is your paper about? Uh, what spurred you to write it? And uh, what spurred you, I, I dare say, to you know, throw a few sharp elbows at activists? Yeah, so... Look, I've been involved in broadband policy for, geez, I don't know, 20 years plus. And uh, the debate used to be about, you know, legitimate complaints, legitimate issues. You know, uh, are, are carriers deploying networks fast enough uh, or are they preserving capital? Um, are they deploying networks broadly, geographically broadly enough? And if so, what should we do about that? And so those are all, you know, are, what do we do about people without broadband access uh, and affordability? Those are all important questions, no, no question about it. But what broadband activists have been doing in the last decade or so is they have, the agenda now for them is not to improve the current U.S. broadband system, which, as you both know, is principally private sector led, intermodal. So it's in multimodal now when you've got 5G and fixed wireless, uh, you've got cable and you've got telephony and now even low LEO satellites. Their goal right now is, is to basically supplant that system with a publicly owned system, a municipally owned system or a local small business co-op system of broadband. They do not want to have the current broadband system where you have com company, companies like Comcast and AT&T competing with one another. If they can't destroy that system, they at least want to have it be heavily regulated the way the old Bell uh, system was regulated. Now, if that's your goal, how do you do that? How do you convince people uh, to really do a radical change in, in our economic system? It'd be like going from private sector healthcare to a Canadian healthcare system. That's the magnitude of what they want to do only in broadband. Well, what you've got to do is you've got to just convince everybody that the current system is not performing well. You've got to tear it down. You've got to critique it at every single point. And that's what they're doing. And, and I, not, I don't want to say that every single critic of the current broadband system is doing that, but the lion's share of the progressives and populists are doing that. So when you hear things like, well, our prices are too high, or our coverage is too limited, or our speeds are too low, or whatever, or there's, quote, redlining. You have to take that with a grain of salt and realize the agenda is not about reform. The agenda is about a fairly radical replacement. And we need to 
you know, people who are serious about a good system need to be able to critique and look at each one of those claims and understand why they're being made and are they accurate? And in most cases, they're not accurate. The paper goes through several claims that critics of the broadband sector make. You, as you just mentioned, you know, if that's your goal, you attack from every possible angle. So you are, the paper's pretty good at going through those seriatim. And let's discuss a few of them, starting with one that I often find is upfront in some of these debates, and yet I, I think is maybe the weakest of the ones we're going to talk about. And that's that internet service is too slow. And this is grossly anecdotal, but just in my own life, I travel around, I have my internet connection here. And if you just have the lived experience of internet, shall we say, things have advanced beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the buffering circle of death downloading individual pictures when I was a kid. And now I'm sitting here, I'm talking to you on a Zoom call. I, I do a lot of my business on Zoom. It's totally reliable. Um, now I don't live in some rural area. We'll get to that in a moment, uh, but my speed tests are always good. Um, so what is there to complain about, about internet speeds? Well, look, if you want to if you want to have everybody lose faith in the current system, you, you know, one of the best ways to do it is to is to tell everybody their speeds are too are, are too low. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, the fact is that over the last decade, U.S. broadband speeds, you know, average speeds for the average person in the U.S. have increased 40 percent every year. So think about that. 40 percent compounded over 10 years. And there's no there doesn't seem to be any any. Uh, cessation of that. It's just going to keep continuing. Um, there's another, there's a company called speedtest.net, which, you know, is not a perfect measure, but it's pretty good for broad national measures. And it shows that we rank sixth in the U.S., uh, 131 megabits per second. So just to use that example. I'm sorry, uh, sixth in the world? Sixth in the world, even ahead of South Korea. So we, uh, to do this call, we need, you know, we, we need 10 megabits maybe just to be safe. That's all. So the average speeds are 131. Uh, so look, the idea that somehow our speeds are not, are not adequate is based upon, there, there, are other, there are other measures like OECD, you know, and, and what they all find is that, you know, yeah, the U.S. isn't number one. In, in this study, we're number six. And in some other studies, we're number 12. But what that misses is, even in the study where we're number 12 or so, we're so close to the top. It's not like we're like our speeds are like one third of the top. They're like 85 to 90 percent of the top. So everybody clumps together in speeds around the world, average broadband. They all clump together. And yeah, we're not number one. But, you know, that's like saying, hey, our cars only go 85 miles an hour when everybody else's in the world's go 89 miles an hour. You know, it's like, who cares? So the whole speed thing is just, to me, it's a bogus argument. It's um, the real question, as you alluded to, Corbin, is are our speeds getting faster and are they meeting the needs of what most people want? And until we all start getting 8K TVs, uh, you know, 90 inch 8K TVs, which uh, five of us in the family watch at once or holographic um, uh, Princess Leia videos, uh, you know, holographs, our speeds are more than adequate for what we all need to do. Hey, hey Rob, I want to drill down a little bit on that because I think generally you're talking about broadband availability, 
right? As opposed to broadband uptake. Because one of the things that's always fascinating to me is if you look at the data coming out of the FCC, the 477 data and, the, and other data is, it, it appears that an awful lot of people have faster speeds available to them, but they simply don't subscribe to it because they don't see the need. They either don't, it's, it's too expensive for what their, their needs are, or they frankly just don't see that need. And yet when we, a lot of times when we see some of these, you know, these arguments that speeds aren't fast enough, they're in fact not talking about the available broadband speeds, but what people are actually buying. And well, if people are not buying the fastest speed, that should, we should allow them to not buy the fastest speed, correct? Well, look, James, th these people suffer from Marxian false consciousness. They, they don't know that they need that. They should, they all need faster speeds, right? That's what the, that's what the progressive left says. And the fact that they're not subscribing to a symmetrical gig, they're, they're being diluted somehow by big broadband. So more seriously to your point, absolutely right. Now, look, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, and I, I have a choice of actually three good providers, uh, two cables and, and, and Fios, at least on the wireline side. And there's, I don't subscribe to the fastest. I, I actually could, for $10 more, not very much, I could really increase my speeds on Fios. And I'm like, why? Why? My speeds are so much, so far above what I need right now that paying 10 bucks a month more, which isn't very much for, you know, significantly expanding my speeds, I don't want to do it. And you're right. Most people are, are in that camp. They just don't have a need for super fast speeds. And you hear this nonsense all the time, places like Chattanooga, where like, you know, the, the federal government, rather than spend money on helping rural areas that had no broadband at all in the 2009 Recovery Act, they, they gave Chattanooga $100 million, which already had good broadband for the government to build a, a fiber to the home network, which now I think you can get gigabit speeds if you're willing to pay 350 bucks a month. Who wants to do that? And who needs gigabit speeds? It's, it's just, you know, you know, my favorite on this is Susan Crawford, who's a, you know, probably the, the queen of the broadband anti-corporate populist. And uh, Susan says, most Americans should have access to a reasonably priced one gigabit symmetric fiber to the home network. And one of the reasons you would do that is so you could download a movie in 12 seconds. Do you, do you ever download a movie? Because I don't. <laughs> I stream movies. And if I am going to download a movie, I really don't care if it downloads in five minutes. I just click download and I do work. So it's really the whole speed argument is a way to convince, try to convince people that somehow the product we're being sold is, is, is insufficient or deficient. So let's shift then to some of the others, because I do think that one personally strikes me as sort of shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, rural, rural access, um, you mentioned, and a lot of industries don't get any kind of subsidy. They stand on their own two feet and provide their product. We pour lots and lots of money into broadband infrastructure, and yet we still don't have uh, universal rural access. Um, how do we how do we fix that? Um, and how big is the problem? And is it something that we can point the finger at at private providers for, uh, yeah. for failing to fix? So the, the, somehow, the, 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 again, if, if you if you want to, you know, if, if if you have a little, you know, anti broadband collective, and 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 you're sitting there strategizing, hey, how can we advance the cause? By the way, I always remember that I got I remember that there was a back in the 
2000s, uh, late 2000s, there was a, a whole group that, that a, guy, a guy named Jim Baller led, and, 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 and it was like sort of this whole collective of populist broadband people. And they, they used to do an annual conference here in Silver Spring at that old movie theater. And, um, and so it was everybody was a broadband populist or they hated the corporations. And um, one, of the, when, one of the things when you went to the, I went to the conference one year, I just wanted to see what, so I got a t-shirt and it was a hammer and sickle. It was a red t-shirt with a hammer and sickle. Only the hammer was like a fiber optic cable and the sickle was something else. You know, it was like, in other words, we want broadband communism. It was just classic. But so if you want to do that, you can say, well, Jesus, you know, we need, everybody needs broadband. And I generally agree with that. Um, and corporations aren't going to provide that in it costs $10,000 to provide it uh, to somebody. And, and you can only make 2000. Why, why would we expect a company to do that? So their argument is, well, if we had the government, if we had government municipalities do that, well, wait a minute, those places without any broadband now, they have governments. Why aren't they providing the broadband? They can subsidize it out of their own tax base. And the reason they're not is because it costs a lot of money. So the, the answer to that is you can have a legitimate debate about should there be a subsidy for broadband? We think there should be. And by the way, you know, given the fact that they, we've now spent what? we're going to be spending $70 billion uh, because of the infrastructure bill and, and the prior bills on rural broadband. As Blair Levin, uh, who used to head a broadband policy, uh, the, the broadband strategy for Obama once said, he said, this is not a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is a once opportunity. In other words, look, if you can't with 70, 80, $90 billion, if you can't solve the problem, we should do something else. And I agree with that. We're, we're going to pour an enormous amount of money into rural broadband after that, stop the subsidies. Let's fine. Let's call it call it a victory. So the point being, broad, private sector broadband providers would be happy to build broadband in unserved areas as long as they have a subsidy, so they don't lose money. But the idea to somehow criticize the current private sector system because they're not building out in the, I don't know, among the six or eight percent of the population that doesn't have wired broadband at, at their home is just a you know again a, a ludicrous argument to make. And finally, and your paper goes through others than these, but this is the last one I'll touch on directly. Um, people should check out the paper who are interested this, in this to get you know, the, the full coverage. But price, uh, one thing I don't understand about price, actually, I don't, th this applies to a lot of aspects of this debate, but the question is always compared to what? When somebody says uh, service X is not good enough, uh, well, I, it, you mean compared to some other world where everything improved, but more than it has or faster than it has, you know, how do you, how do you make that case? And I, I feel that way about price as speeds have increased and the service has increased. How do you make the case that, well, it all should have happened this way. Everything should have gotten better, but it should have somehow been cheaper. And I suppose the way you could do that is look at other countries and see if we're paying too much, but then it's often apples and oranges. I mean, getting internet to Bozeman, Montana is not the same as getting internet to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, so I suppose I've kind of already, uh, you know, I've really showed my cards here, but uh, what is your take on how do, how do we even assess price and whether we should be happy with the amount that we're paying for broadband service? Yeah, so this really gets to a kind of a core issue. Um, in in the minds of the broadband populist, broadband is 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 a is a, is is not even a public utility; it's a road. 
So do we pay for our roads? Not directly. I mean, we pay indirectly through gas taxes. Um, that's what they want this thing to be. They, they actually want free broadband. So I mentioned this, you know, quasi broadband Marxist conference uh, with the hammer and the sickle. Uh, during one of the during one of the panels, uh, somebody was saying, you know what we need? We need five dollar a month high speed broadband. And, and I thought to myself, you know what I need? I need a hundred dollar Jeep Cherokee because we just bought a new car three years ago. And it cost us a lot of money. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Can I just I, cut in really quick? Yeah. Does any country socialize their Internet in that in that way? No, no, no. Not that I'm aware of. There, there are certainly countries that have tried to build like Australia, uh, not very, frankly, not very well, government-owned networks, but they, they always charge money. So, so nobody's done that, but they, they want to do it. The broadband populace want to do it. Now, in terms of the price thing, there's really two main issues there, Corbin. One is it's apples to oranges. So, you know, I've been to Korea. Korea has, you know, lower prices, uh, but probably 70% of Korean broadband subscribers live in high-rise apartment buildings. Uh, it's vastly like probably order of magnitude cheaper to put fiber to that thing and then run up coax into that building than it is to do out exurban Washington or exurban any place in the, in the country. So that's one thing. The second thing they use, they use a completely false uh, comparison. They use this price per megabits per second. So imagine that I'm paying, you know, $50 a month for a hundred megs. So I'm paying uh, what, 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 a, a do- $2 a meg, right? Now, what if I, what if Japan has 200 megs a second and they're paying $60? Well, it sounds like they're almost half the price, but in reality, price doesn't, is not linear um, with the, speed is not linear. The cost of speed is not linear. In other words, I can double my speeds, but it doesn't mean that my costs double. So I'm not explaining that very well, but if you have just slightly faster speeds, it looks like you're paying a whole lot less. When, when again, I go back to my example, do I want to double my speeds for $10 more? If I did, it would look like my price went down by a dramatic amount. Even though I'm paying more, uh, my price went way down and that's just false. Well, let me come at it this way. And I think Jim will probably have some input that he can offer on this as well. It is often charged that the market is not competitive. And basic economics would tell us that if there's a lack of competition, prices are going to be higher than they otherwise would be. I mean, that's pretty Adam Smith level stuff. Um, So Jonathan Sallet, for instance, when he was at the Benton Institute went through this and his finding was that to get uh, broadband access, you have basically about 11% of American households that don't have it. This was as his analysis in 2019. Uh, 35% are in a market that has only one provider. And then 37% are in a duopoly where there's one choice in the sense of you choose between one of two providers. So that's, uh, you know, you're like somewhere around three quarters of American households. Two questions for you. Do you agree with those figures? Um, and if you don't, you know, what, what's the problem? So this is one of the problems. So if you define broadband in a certain way, you could actually define it that almost nobody has broadband in the US. If you said broadband was one gigabit symmetrical, half a percent of the American population has broadband. Oh my God, why don't we have broadband? So what Jonathan is doing is he's defining broadband in a certain way to make it look like there's no, there's only one provider in place, or there may be two. Uh, it's just, 
I'll give you an example. I may not have made this clear. Yeah. So to be clear, Salat defines it as 100 megabytes download and 10 meg megabytes upload per second. Yeah. Well, that, again, I again, I live in Bethesda. If I wanted to buy 100 megabits, I could do it this afternoon. I could do it online. And I don't. So does that mean I don't have broadband or that there's no competition on my street? It's, you know, ridiculous. I, you know, there's, again, three providers here. So I was in vacation last week with my family and we went to Santa Fe and we stayed at a little, uh, you know, kind of Airbnb little house out in the country. And um, it had uh, it had broadband through the telephone line. And uh, I did a speed test and I was getting 20 megs, uh, kind of symmetrical. Now, according to Jonathan, I don't have broadband at that house, but I was engaging. Unfortunately, I had to do some work and I was engaging in you know, very good Zoom calls, super crisp video, super low latency. I had broadband. I just didn't have the sort of yuppie broadband that, that, that Jonathan and these other folks want. And again, you got to go back to why is he defining it that way? Why do they define it that way? Because they want to make it look like the system is not performing. It's again, it's a nonsensical notion. Now, to be fair, there are places with no broadband. And if I define broadband as say 2010, I would define it that maybe 2510. In other words, 25 down, 10 up. Perfectly adequate for what you know, 90% of the people, 95% of the people want to be able to do right now. Then yeah, there's a lot of competition there. Second thing that I that they that where they make a mistake is they're confusing kind of this notion of price competition with cost. So does anybody really think that if we, if the government subsidized a third builder all around the country, that prices would go down? There's no way prices would go down. Prices would go up because the incumbents, they com, let's just say Comcast and AT&T, they now would have fewer customers because by definition, I mean, all, all the stuff on, on ARPU, average revenue per user, all, all of the Wall Street analyst data makes that very clear. Once you're in a neighborhood and you, you go below a certain share of, 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 of customers, you are going to lose money. So they can't continue to lose money, so they're going to have to raise prices. So the idea that somehow more and more networks built is somehow going to be good for consumers, it's like saying, hey, you know, I have... Um, I have a road and I, need, I, I want two roads now when, when one is adequate. The second thing, Corbin, about that, which I think is kind of the, the, the proof is in the pudding. Okay, why are they saying this? They're essentially saying this, there's no competition so the imp, and, and therefore prices are high. Therefore, the implication has to be that profits are too high. Otherwise, where would the money be going, right? So they're, they're, they're charging too high prices, there's not enough competition, and therefore they must be making high profits. According to you know, multiple sources of data on profits between European providers and American providers, the evidence, particularly from a, a professor at NYU, I can share that with you there, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, it shows that the profits in Europe are actually lower, oh, sorry, higher. So if you take sort of the major eight broadband providers in Europe, Deutsche Telekom and uh, uh, Telefonica and all that stuff, and you average their profits versus the average profits of, say, Comcast, AT&T, Charter, Verizon, our profits are you know, pretty much exactly the same, if not a tad lower. So explain to me what's the problem. There doesn't seem to be any excess profit gouging here. And moreover, our cost structure is higher. 
because Europe is much more densely populated. They can, they can run wire to, you know, a hundred houses at maybe half the cost that we can do it. So I don't see that as a, I, I see that as a success. Boy, we're, we've, we've got, you know, relatively fair profits. They're in the realm of nor- normalcy, if you will. They're not higher than our competitors. Um, you know, so what's the problem? Again, you got to go back to the core reason. Why do they define it so that we don't have competition? Why do they want more competition? What they want is they want government-induced competition. Oh, we don't have enough competition. What should be the answer? We're going to overbuild. This is why this to me is probably the single most important question over the next two years, because there's a massive amount of money sitting out there now that uh, the Department of Commerce is going to be handing out to the states to build networks. The single most important question is, are the states going to use that money to finally provide broadband to people that don't have any broadband? Or are they going to use it on this campaign to overthrow private providers and overbuild? So, Jim, is it just a matter of the way um, this is being defined? I mean, is there any more to disagree on about the competitive of the market? It just seems like there must be more to it than, than the fact that some people are using one benchmark of speed down and speed up and other people are using a different one. I mean, there, there's certainly that it is, you know, you see all these studies going around and, and you know, they're, they're widely you know, diametrically opposed <clears throat> in terms of their conclusions, but but Rob, I, I've got a I've got a, a very fundamental problem that I, I can't seem to get past, and that is what appear to be two underlying assumptions being made by by, by these people, and and one assumption is that as you said, uh, there's not enough competition, and so we'll interject government competition into this mix, and that that will lower prices. But the flip side, at the same time, they say, oh, well, broadband is actually a fundamental monopoly. And so because of that, we need to highly regulate uh, all aspects of it. Well, aren't those completely orthogonal to each other? I mean, how, how can you say on the one hand that it's, that it's a monopoly and so there can only be one of them, but then on the flip side say, well, we need to have a government run a, com- a competitor so we'll bring down prices. I mean, it just seems like you, you can't get there from here. I agree that's completely contradictory, but that's not stopped these folks. Uh, and I think the way to explain the contradiction is that the, the, the way to get the camel's nose under the tent is to say there's not enough competition, so we need a government overbuilder. And then you end up destroying the private providers. You have a natural monopoly at that point, and then you have a government-run network that is just set prices. And so what they really want at the end of the day is they want this to be like, I mean, I'm trying to think of what the example would be where I live. Um, I don't know, the, 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 uh, the municipal, the government owned uh, system that gives me water and sewer. Um, there's no competition there. That, and that's what they want. Now, what they're missing, though, and this is why I think it gets a little tricky, is the U.S. system evolved quite differently than a lot of other countries because we had cable and we had telephony. The Europeans largely didn't have cable, so they were stuck with one plant, if you will, one wire. They said, oh, we got to have competition, so we're going to unbundle that wire and open it up to competitors. We didn't have that problem because we had two competitors, two, two types of wires, who were competing fiercely. And uh, now we're really adding a third, because if you look at fixed 5G, so a company like Verizon now, which is deploying fixed 5G, so it's a wireless p- product, 
but it can serve as broadband in your home. They're serve, they're they're deploying that outside of their of their FiOS footprint to provide essentially a third pipe, if you will. So that's the other thing. The technology is now creating more natural competition. And the role of government, in in, in my view here, is to enable competition. You, you want to get rid of the barriers. If somebody comes in, thinks they have a better mousetrap, great. But you shouldn't put the thumb on the scale to make that happen. Well, so again, though, there does there must be more of of there must be more to the debate than simply defining you know how you define the speed up, the speed down. And it seems to me that if you're a telecom company, well, and and going to that, like maybe one of you can touch on this. We don't even seem to have uh, adequate maps yet of of broadband, right? Um, and if you're a telecom company and you're in this debate, it seems like you're already on the back foot. If government is providing a lot of subsidy to a market and you are accepting that subsidy, you are, you are on the back foot in debating about how that money should be spent. It seems like it would be wiser to say this market can stand entirely on its own two feet than to say, yes, money should be coming into it from the government, but that money should specifically be going to say like private sector companies rather than municipal providers. So is the fact that there's this much money going into it kind of a, a sign that the activists are on to something, that there is a, you know, not literally all internet is utility, but there is a utility-like aspect to certain, you know, certainly rural pr providing and, and might the better argument for telecom companies to be saying, not only is the market currently competitive, but it could be, you know, more competitive if we freed it up more. Well, I guess uh, a couple things. One, I, just, I, I do want to go back to this other point, and then I'll, I'll answer your question. From One of the things that I think people mistake on this, when they, you know, most people who, who aren't IO economists, uh, they, they, they kind of think about the, the optimal market as like uh, something with 50 providers, you know, like I, I live in Bethesda and I, I can go to 10 dry cleaners. So the dry cleaning market in, in my neighborhood is pretty competitive. And I can mix and match and shop and all this stuff. But when you get into industries that have very high capital costs, you don't need 10 providers to have a lot of competition. So you look at Verizon and Comcast, they've sunk an enormous amount of capital. And the marginal co cost for them of losing a customer is quite serious. So they compete intensely because they've already spent all this money. And if I, if I walk away from the Verizon plant here, they still have that piece of wire to my house. They still have to maintain that wire on my block. So I think it's important to understand industry structures. Secondly, on the pricing thing, a lot of, in fact, most big broadband companies, they have regional pricing plans. And so they don't say, well, well, let's do this analysis. Rob, you're on this block and, and you, you, don't, you can't get FIOS, so we're going to charge you more. They don't do that. They, they charge sort of one price in, in, in the region. They don't, they don't go and look and say, oh, do you have, a, do you, do you have competition? We're going to raise the price. So that's, that, I think, goes against this notion of, well, there's only one provider. It's really, do you have, one, do you have two providers in a region? And, and lastly, uh, on this, this point, Corbin, um, I think that in a way, it's the broadband providers are put in a tough situation because if they don't advocate for this money, um, what the result will end up being will be continued critique of the, of the industry for not getting universal broadband geographically. And 
a massive push to have government, local governments and other state and state governments to actually come in and create their own government run networks. And I think the more we have, the more government run networks we have, even though a lot of them frankly just fail, the fact that they're there is, is again, the nose under the camel's tent. Uh, it'll, it'll give sucker to the people who, oh, look, we've got a broadband government run network in you know, the middle of nowhere of, of Oklahoma. Let's put one in Tulsa. So I guess I think that I do think it's I, I support having the right government subsidies. What I would do, frankly, would be I would have reverse auctions. I would and I would make it so that you can't have some fly by night company come in here. And I would say the company that can do the best job of broadband at the lowest price in rural gets a one time subsidy. We're done with it. Let's move on. So I agree with you that it at one level suggests, well, maybe, maybe, you know, this is a government takeover, but at the other hand, if we don't do it, then we're going to have government run networks anyway. Hey, Rob, I, I want to riff a little bit on, on the, you know, the fly by night thing, because one of the things that I'm seeing, you know, in my private practice and, you know, as a disclaimer, I, I represent a number of Native American tribes. I come from the West. I come from big sky country. Uh, I know how difficult it is to to string, you know, wire over the Rocky Mountains. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'm just appalled at are all these consultants that are running around and literally talking all these municipalities into these, these broadband planning, you know, and, and all of this stuff, and then actually starting to implement it. I mean, I'm in some local litigation right now where you know, the municipality hired a company to come in and start stringing wires. And the first thing they did was they took my client's cable plant and they moved it up into the power grid, you know, into the power <laughs> lines. And so suddenly, you know, the, the client gets complaints that, they're, that, that people's broadbands are going down. They went out and looked at it and said, wait a second, how did our cables line up in there? And, and when they called the company, they said, well, we've never actually done this before. And that was the only space we saw available left on the pole. So we just moved your, your, your plan into that. And I mean, that's, you know, a data point, but I'm seeing more and more of this, of, of people who are really fundamentally unqualified to be building these networks as opposed to the people who've built these networks over the past hundred years. And, you know, how do you respond to that? I look, Jim, I, I 100% agree with you. I think it's a huge risk. I, this, this, you know, massive amount of money, and hopefully, hopefully, we're done with it. Okay, let's just let's declare victory, wire up, you know, 99% of the homes, be done with it. But I think it's a huge opportunity for every consultant and their brother-in-law or sister-in-law to come out of the woodwork. Every small company who may or may not know what they're doing. And I, we filed comments with NTIA, uh, Joe Kane on our team on this, and and we're gonna we're doing a longer report on this. But one of the key points we want to we want to make is that NTIA should require that a company who gets a contract to do this has to spend their own money and only gets reimbursed after a successful deployment. <clears throat> In other words, if you don't have the capital and wherewithal and you're not willing to risk your own money uh, to build it, you shouldn't get the money. This shouldn't be, hey, here's some money up front. Can you can you kind of get started? No, we, we don't because all that does is invite weak companies, inexperienced companies, frankly, fly by night, fraudulent companies. So that would be one thing we could do. Yeah. And, and by the way, in Tech Freedom, we filed comments you know, with, with, with NTIA on that as well. One of the things we suggest is NTIA collect data on how much money is being spent on outside consultants 
um, so that they can get sort of a sense as to what, you know, how much of, of this money is actually going into the ground and how much is, is actually just being scooped off the top by, by these consultants on that. One more thing I want, I want to Jim, I quickly say, you know, look, if you want to just put a thing out there and say you want to have some competitors come in and build them, you don't need consultants for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but the one thing I want to touch on when you talk about you talked earlier about roads, you know, as an analogy and, and the analogy that I use is, you know, I have 10 acres out in West Virginia. Right. And so to get there, I live in northern Virginia as uh, I drive on I-66, which is, you know, ever widening. It's five lanes at, at times. And eventually I go down to two lanes and then I get out to 81 and I go down to a single lane and then I get on the Robert Byrd you know, highway and goes back up, you know, and then I go into one lane and eventually to get to my place, I'm on a dirt road. And yet all the construction I see is never on my dirt road. It is always on the arteries that feed back into that. And I see this sort of move into municipal broadband is the same thing. That money never really is going to go to my dirt road in West Virginia. It's always going to be the equivalent of widening I-66, isn't it? Because if you're a government, isn't your constituency the most number of people who live you know, and they all happen to live closer together? I mean, how, how do you square that circle that a government you know, it is always going to cater to the most number of people, which means it's always going to increase the broadband to the, to the people living closest together. So, you know, it'll be interesting when I assume this whole initiative uh, will will somehow know what's gone on, what's happened, how successful it's been in, in probably what, four years, let's say. And uh, in four years, I will either be saying, oh, geez, my entire philosophy of government is, 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 was wrong and I failed, or I'll say, no, wait, it can happen. And by what, what I mean by that is if you look at what happened in the, in the Recovery Act monies of 2009, Jeff Eisenach has shown that a lot of that money was just totally wasted, totally wasted, and, and went to overbuilding. And I have to say, I was disappointed because I thought government could do better. I mean, we supported that. And I'm willing to, it's like Charlie Brown in the football. I'm willing to kick the football one, be Lucy and kick it one more time. If it turns out, and I think there are pressures to do that. Uh, there was a, you know, you, you guys shared a report from Pennsylvania that was very clear where that was going to overbuild. If it turns out that a lot of that money was spent on overbuild and in four years, we still have four or 5% of the US population unserved, then we just basically got to say, this is a joke. This is a complete joke and we should just stop because that would be a failure. I, I mean, I harken back to the 2017 white paper out of, out of the FCC where they said that, um, I think at that time it was 12% of the population doesn't have broadband as they defined it and that it would cost uh, $40 billion to get down to 1% and another $40 billion to get to, you know, all the way to everybody having, um, yeah, in that case, fiber to the premises, you know, FTTP. Well, that was 2017, that's five years ago. We've spent well over $80 billion and the last reports I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm feeling it, my clients out in Indian country are feeling it, there's still that same last two to three to 4% of people, I mean, do we ever get there? I mean, that's that's the question I get is, is even if we spent all of this money, you know, that, that that's raining down as mana from heaven you know, on this, 
would we ever get to, to that 100% or even to that 99%? Or is that just an unobtainable goal because of that last 1% is going to be so expensive that short of you know, uh, satellite systems or something like that, we really never will be able to close that digital divide? Well, first of all, the idea that we would spend taxpayer money to get to 100% is, to me, nonsensical. Uh, the cost, you know, it's like fiber to the igloo, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I actually read a book, really interesting book about a guy who lives in Alaska. Uh, he's a, you know, whatever, Inuit or whatever, lives with family, and he, or lives way out, you know, 40 miles from anything. So he skis or gets skis or whatever, you know, uh, you know, to, to the nearest town, 40 miles away. He's a trapper. Well, to get to 100%, you got to run a fire, a fi fiber cable 40 miles through the Alaskan wilderness. Nonsensical. Look, we need to. We, there, there's a there's a great graph in Blair Levin's National Broadband Strategy. You, once you get to 98, 99, that that price per home just skyrockets. You know, vertical. So look, we have a wonderful thing now. We have LEOs, low Earth orbits, super low latency, fairly high speeds let's take advantage of that technology. We don't need to be spending an enormous amount of money to, on, on, you know, the, the way, the way this money frankly should be spent is there's a sweet spot of people who have no broadband right now. And the cost per hooking them up is reasonable, you know, three or 4,000, $5,000, whatever like that. Just stop after that. And you're right, Jim, if we, if, if with all this money now and in somewhat in the past, if we, if we can't do that, we should just say, that's it. I mean, I, I would fully support after this money's been spent, no more, um, no more money to rural broadband. If you can't get it, you should get LEO satellites. And I'd be fine with, again, if low income people need a little bit of a subsidy, if you're poor and you need a few bucks to you know, afford a satellite broadband, that's different than pouring billions and billions of dollars into this endless pit. So I think I, I still have faith that states can do this right and and hopefully most of them will do it right to just put the money on the places that don't have it and don't cost an enormous amount of money well i'm glad we've gotten good coverage of the infrastructure bill putting aside the issue of subsidies maybe that you can't untangle that but municipal broadband uh in the context say of pharmaceuticals if you have terminal cancer or whatever a lot of people promote you know a right to try why not give it a shot um, people want to set up municipal or co-op companies. Um, they're going to create a competitor if they're totally incompetent as oh, Jim actually brings up an interesting example of them obstructing others. But on the whole, let's talk about them just being incompetent. If that's the case, they will fail. Why not let them try? I mean, don't some states even there's a movement to outlaw those competitors. I mean, let them do it and they'll fail and we'll know that and we can move on. Why, why is that not a legitimate belief? Well, I think what the government should do is enable any private sector entrant to come in. If, if they're not getting a subsidy, then hey, go for it. I mean, might have to put a bond in, you know, you, so if you destroy the street and you, and you walk away, you got to pay for it. But absolutely. And it could be a, it could be a, you know, a worker owned co-op. It could be a community owned co-op. Great. Wonderful. But where you cross the line, though, is when you have the government itself providing the network, because to me, the problem with there's, there's a great example of, uh, of um, a town in Utah, um, Amon, Utah, that we wrote about. 
And in Amon, Utah, the there, there was a cable provider, it's a small city, uh, not very big at all. There was a cable provider and a telco provider for broadband and the city decided they wanted their own. So what they did is they created these broadband districts where if you wanna get broadband, you gotta get a bunch of your neighbors to sign up. So I think that's called redlining. As, as the populists say. And then secondly, you have to pay a $3,500 signup fee. Uh, and on top of that, there's a big giant uh, debt on the government's books where they subsidize this to now are, and, 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 and you know, paying it off. Why is that fair competition? Because it's not fair competition. So the problem with government competition, especially where you already have providers, I think is it tends to be unfair. They don't pay poll attachment fees. They get in. They don't have to. They they get all these other benefits like uh, you know in hidden subsidies. My argument would be: Look, if you, if you're a, a town like that and you got nothing, there's no cable, there's no telephone, and you first thing you do is you go to your regional providers and say, Hey, could you come into our town? And what do you need uh, to, to you know, make this work? Could could we give you like really streamlined poll attachments and no per, you know really quick permitting? And if that point they say, no, you got nothing, then, then I'm okay. You know, we're okay with a government provided network because they got nothing. But that's not where most of the government provided networks have been. Most of the government provided networks are cities like Burlington, Vermont did this. They had a Burlington, Vermont, when they started their government funded network, which went bankrupt and left the taxpayers in massive amount of debt. They had really good broadband. They had the same broadband I had in Bethesda, Maryland at the time from cable company and telco company. So it's those kinds of things, which it's just at that point, you're, you're, you're doing something ideologically, not, not prag pragmatically. Jim brought up a good point. He mentioned that there's sort of, sometimes the argument is made that, that it's a natural monopoly broadband and so that would assume you have one provider and sometimes there's talk of creating greater competition and that ties into a thought that i've had before uh progressive populists when they look at big tech companies google amazon or whatever their 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 case tends to be break them up when they look at big telecom for lack of a better term um, they tend to say, bring in more competition, government co-op services. Those are very different approaches. Now you could make the case in each instance, I think poorly in each instance, but you could, that it's okay, it's a natural monopoly. Well, that would recommend the same approach, the same solutions, and yet they have completely different solutions. And when I think about, well, why that, why is that? I, my hunch is that at the core is the fact that Amazon is seen and Google, well, let's stick with Amazon. They're constantly innovating. They are, if anything, the, the complaint is that they are ruthless innovators. They're so good at it that they're constantly wiping out mom and pop stores or whatever is kind of the story. People don't, let's be honest, people don't really say that about telecom companies. We look at things like the AT&T Time Warner merger to just take one recent example, like the, the, the headlines don't tend to be um, sort of a victims of their own success type narrative the way they are with, say, Amazon. And frankly, the service of cable companies, for, for fairly or unfairly, I may take no position, but it can be very negative. You know, I think of the South Park episode 
that just makes a total running joke throughout of it about how much people hate cable service. The cable operator, the phone operator uh, takes positive pleasure in messing with the customer. Oh, you know, we'll be out there to fix it between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. sometime in March kind of thing. And so that's a long wind up to say, uh, part of this is not activists just attacking. It, it is that telecom is struggling to have an image uh, the way that big tech does of these positive innovators. Um, how do you, well, you know, feel free to comment on whether that's fair and fair or unfair, you know, how does, how do we improve that? How do we make it so that populist attacks um, don't get taken seriously or can't get traction? So a couple of things. The argument that, you know, we, they've, they've done serve, you know, these, these consumer satisfaction surveys and broadband providers tend to rank low. And, and so that, again, the anti-corporate activists just jump all over that. They say, ha, ah, if we had more competition, you'd have higher quality services. Well, there's a really good case in point. We can look at that. And if you look at the same survey in the UK, you find the exact same results, even though in the UK, they have forced unbundling from British Telecom and the average consumer there can get four, five, six different providers. It's the exact same result. Well, how can that be? The answer is, look, this is a really hard thing to do. You, you, you want to send somebody out, a, a cable, the cable guy or the cable gal. It's not like, oh, I'm, this will take one hour. You don't know that. You know, it might take four hours. It's, it's, these are complex systems. Their wires could be down. Somebody's home has a problem. So the idea is, look, I'm not saying these companies are perfect, sure, but the idea is somehow that the reason customer service is, is not as good as people want is because of monopoly. Just, again, it doesn't, doesn't show up. The second point is these companies are innovative. Uh, if you think about, again, having increases in speed, what name an industry where you have a 45% improvement in your product year over year, end over end, over end every year? I, I, you know, maybe the computer industry, sure. But I don't see that in many places. So they're innovating. That, that just doesn't come like, oh, well, geez, our speeds went up 45%. The other thing is they're investing a significant amount of capital every year. I don't know what it is. Jim, you may know that, 40, 50 billion a year. Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it was 70 billion a year. Seven, and and yeah. since 1996, it's $1.9 trillion. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a monopolistic industry. That's just, you know, taking, uh, you know, rent seeking. And the last thing is, you know, if you look at a lot of these networks, particularly um, wireless networks, you know, they're really the U S is leading our carriers are leading the push for what's called the ORAN open radio access networks or um, uh, network software defined networks. I mean, these are, this is a big revolution, really radical change in how networks work. It's not easy by any stretch of the event. Just say, oh, well, we can do that. No, no, no. It's really complicated. And the U.S. carriers are in the lead in the world and pushing for that because that new kind of open radio access network and software defined networks, even on the wireline side, software defined networks are going to be really the next big thing. So, yeah, again, what, what the, what the anti-corporate broadband people want to do is they want to define this as the dumb pipe. So this is what Jim Baller, the, the guy who had that sort of communist conference, he, he, was, he always called it, these are just dumb pipes. So if it's a dumb pipe, it means that some city with 3,000 people in it uh, and, and, and a local public works department of 12 people can run it. 
right? How hard is that? It's not a dumb pipe. It's a super complicated pipe that takes companies with real sophistication to be able to operate and improve. You know, when it comes to customer satisfaction, I certainly want my uh, broadband to work as well as my DMV visits. So I'm all <laughs> for the government running it. Once again, it's yeah, it's all about the benchmark you pick. Uh, well, oh, by the way, speaking of that, I went to the DMV today for my for my air emissions. But the last time I went, uh, they said, oh, you can do this self-service thing, which is cheaper. I, the money wasn't. I just like self-service. So I did the self-service thing. I, I literally waited in line for 45 minutes. I got up to the thing and it had broken right before then. And I had to drive to the other place. So that that was great innovation. Rob, this has been great fun. Um, you have your hand in so many different topics, uh, broadband and beyond. So it would be wonderful in closing to hear uh, just what's on your plate. What do we have to look forward to uh, from you in the future and uh, the near future? And then Jim, uh, I'd like to ask you the same about you and, and tech freedom, but Rob, please. Yeah. So we're, our, I mean, we were super sorry to lose Doug Brake, who had been doing broadband at ITF for, geez, I think seven years, but he went into the administration now at NTIA. But we have a new uh, person, Joe Kane, who's just great. And, and, and Joe's really taking over the lead on that. So we're going to continue work, including on um, you know, really how do we how do we fix the spectrum mess? I mean, this whole FAA thing with with 5G, that was ridiculous that it got that far. Um we're also going to be doing work on how do you how do you make Spectrum more of a free market, an open market, uh, with more rights there. You know, another big area that we continue to work on it's it's not really broadband, but it's um, this whole demonization of emerging technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence or facial recognition. Look, you know, you can have real legitimate arguments about what the government can do with that, but when I go to the gym. I would love to have facial recognition that I voluntarily sign up for so that I don't have to pull out my phone or my card. So there's just so many new technologies that are being demonized, uh, particularly AI. Um, that Anyway, that's an area we're just will continue to fight for because I think, you know, we have to have more innovation in the U.S. to make people's lives better and, and more prosperous. And demonizing innovation is not the way to get there. Fantastic. Every, everyone listening, Rob is, uh, he has his finger on the future. If you want to follow <laughs> him on Twitter. And uh, again, I recommend Big is Beautiful. Fantastic book. Thank you. Um, Jim, what are we up to here at Tech Freedom? What are you up to? What, what, what's in our broadband future? So, you know, we, we are the lawyers for the future. Yeah, that's what we like to call ourselves. And, and I agree with Rob, we're all about freedom as well. Um, and the fact that we've got to uh, allow this innovation um, to continue and not demonize it. Uh, yes, we have to keep our eye on it. And yes, we have to, um, you know, strategically uh, put some regulations in place from time to time. But by and large, you know, it, it, you know, I, I often say what we're guilty of right now is we're, we're assuming that technology has ended, you know, that we are at the end of history and that we are at the end of technology. And therefore, we now need to overlay uh, you know, a regulatory process on top of everything because we've squeezed everything we can out. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, you know, even in the computer industry, Moore's Law is still continuing. And yet Moore's Law is now applying itself into so many other industries. You know, Gordon, as you know, you know, space is my passion. You know, that's been my practice area, you know, you know for almost 40 years now. And what we're finally seeing is Moore's Law uh, you know, hitting, um, hitting space. And what we're getting, one of the you know, benefits is Leo satellite systems. 
Um, and, you know, that's not a result just of uh, the fact that, that, you know, Elon Musk is launching stuff at, at one-tenth the price you know, that everybody used to. But the satellites themselves are costing one one-hundredth the price of a traditional satellite. So there we go. And, and that's the type of innovation we've got to keep our eye on. And rather than try and derail it by concluding that we've already squeezed all the innovation out, we've got to get out of the way and just let, let that happen. And that's what we're champions for and will continue to be. Thank you both so much. I've been joined by Rob Atkinson. He is the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Also by Jim Dunstan, our general counsel here at Tech Freedom. I am Corbin Barthold, internet policy counsel at Tech Freedom. Uh, this has been the Tech Policy Podcast. I don't say it enough. If you enjoy this podcast, please go and Give it that five-star rating wherever you listen. Uh, we would appreciate it. And while you go do that, I'll go prepare the next episode. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>